This podcast is sponsored by Low No Drinker magazine, the number one UK magazine for the sober curious drinker, bringing you news, reviews and interviews from the people, places and brands leading the low and no alcohol revolution. As a Sober Rebel listener, use code SOBERREBEL15 to get 15% off any digital or print subscription from the Low No Drinker magazine for six whole months. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Sober Rebel podcast. I'm Louisa Evans and I love talking to my guests about the benefits of sobriety, the things that they've noticed that have changed for the better in their lives. And so I ask them to come up with three things. And each time, the three things are different. And this episode goes out on Boxing Day. And to celebrate, I'm talking to an account I've watched from afar for a long time, and he makes me laugh. I can't wait to find out what his three things are. So let's get stuck straight in and talk to Michael. Happy without the hooch. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll just start by saying I'm so excited to talk to you. I've you been, too. Oh, I've been watching you for so long. Well, it seems to have flown by because I don't feel that sober yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have now been sober for, it's just shy of a thousand days and we're recording this in early November. So by the time this comes out, it'll be over a thousand days sober. I think I'm 990 days sober as we speak. That is amazing. I used to struggle to get past day three. Then I did seven months and then had a relapse for four. That was pretty disastrous. And then I decided, look, I know I've had seven months of sobriety. I've done it once. I can do it again. I know that my life felt better sober during those seven months than it did during this misery of drinking every night again. So I'm going to see how far I can take it. And that's that's uh, nearly a thousand days ago. So it's going a lot better than the 10 years of day threes. I did 10 years of day threes as well. That's exhausting, isn't it? It is, yeah. I look back and I think, how on earth did I carry on for so long? I mean, I I struggle with energy now. I'm not one of these up at the crack of dawn sobers and does a 10k and eats some quinoa and spinach. I'm quite a lazy sober person and I struggle to wake up some mornings. And I think, how on earth did I drink until 2 or 3 a.m. every night? And then get up at sort of half past seven and go to work. <laughs> it's like, if I don't go to bed by sort of 11 now and I'm up at seven, then I feel really rough. And that's without a hangover on top. So I look back and I think, well done you. You you really pulled out all the stops there to disguise your drinking problem because I was so rough most of the time. Do you think it was like bloody mindedness a little bit? Because I think for me, it was I was so determined it wasn't going to affect me that I would get up and throw myself into things, whereas now I'm listening to my body a little bit more. Yeah, I had no respect for my body. I thought it would just carry on doing exactly what I wanted it to do, just no matter how harshly I punished it. I was like, a, essentially, I don't like the word alcoholic, but I was what a lot of people would describe as a functional alcoholic for a good while. There had been a couple of milestones, I suppose, in my drinking that had changed my drinking. One was when I was 28 and I was in a bad relationship and I planned to get out of it by moving in with my best friend, Juliet. Then unexpectedly, she passed away. She was like my confidant. I'd tell her anything. We'd been best friends since our teens. 
And all of a sudden I'd lost my confidant, but also my escape plan. And so when I was then coming home from work, I'd stop and pick up like the half bottles of Sainsbury's own brand gin and I'd drink that in secret and then it escalated. And another sort of milestone of drinking which really ramped things up was I went on a camping trip with my, well, then friend, now partner actually, and we'd got loads of drinks in. We were in the middle of Wales on a farm. We got what we thought was just about enough drink for the weekend for the two of us, which was a litre of vodka, a standard sized bottle of vodka, some mixers, you know, because we're not uncouth, and then 16 pints of beer. And we thought that should last us the weekend, and it didn't. After the first night, I don't really remember what happened, but we had been so loud, foul-mouthed and vile that we were chucked off the campsite. We were told at 7.30am we had half an hour to leave the campsite, otherwise the police would be called. And I wasn't in a fit state to drive, but I was like, well, I've got to leave, otherwise she's calling the police. So I drove the two miles up the road, not knowing she'd already called the police and told them that she was kicking someone off the campsite who wasn't in a fit state to drive. So they were waiting for me in the nearest village where I'd planned to have my full English and spend the day lazing around until I felt good enough to function. So I lost my driving license and that should have been a real eye opener and it was for a while. But then I realised that now I don't have the responsibility to drive anywhere. I can drink whenever I like. I've got lots of friends who don't drive and I make sure I had reasons to go out and drive in the evenings. I knew that would I wouldn't drink if I was driving. More often I wouldn't drink until I got back. So I just started my drinking later. But then all of a sudden, no driving licence. I then got in trouble with work. So I was suspended but on full pay. And so now I was being paid to sit home doing nothing. So of course I just just drank even more until I was um, drinking every night. I'd been drinking most nights anyway, but if I didn't drink, I was shaking. So I would then drink just to stop the shakes. So that was full blown physical dependency by that point. And that made it really hard to stop because even if I wanted to stop, I knew it was dangerous. I'd had a couple of fits in the past when I tried to stop drinking. And those can be dangerous, especially if you're living alone. It's just dangerous. So I needed to do a, a home detox. And I was just surprised how quickly it descended from what had started off as weekend binge drinking, daily drinking of what was still too much, but to drinking a bottle of vodka every night. Otherwise, I'd have a fit. And it's just a, a slippery slope. And I, you don't know you're on it until it's too late. Oh, my goodness. There's so much there. I'm I'm so sorry about your friend. I was sort of keeping quiet. I didn't want to interrupt you at all. Then, as you say, that slippery slope, that's what I always say. I was on a slippery slope and I don't know how far down I was going to go. I didn't become dependent. But you don't know when that was going to happen. No, I didn't know at what point this is going to become a dependency. I think I stopped caring. Uh, there's at some point where I, I knew that it was really problematic. My mental health wasn't great. And that's not surprising. I don't know anybody who's a heavy drinker with great mental health. I just don't think that happens. I think either you're drinking heavily because your mental health's poor to begin with, or your mental health's poor because you're drinking heavily. And the, the two just feed each other. So I'd stopped caring, really whether I lived or died. And so I thought, I just might as well carry on then. The Robbie Williams song where he, he says, um, I don't want to die, but I'm not keen on living either. And it, that resonated with me. It's like, well, yeah, I'm not quite ready, not quite ready to die, but I'm not enjoying life. I became a bit apathetic about it all. So I thought, I'll just carry on, see where it takes me. And that's where it took me. 
Goodness. And you say you did a, a home detox. Yes. So that's um, provided by the local drug and alcohol centre. You check in every day. They give you meds that help keep you safe, essentially, from the withdrawal symptoms of alcohol. And you check in every day. And it only takes a week to detox. So when we're talking about addiction, people are saying how hard beating an addiction is. Well, physically, it's not that hard. Most people won't need support. They won't need a, de a home detox or they won't need a residential detox. That's the easy bit. It takes a week. But the difficult bit is then restructuring your life so that you don't relapse, so that you don't miss alcohol and think about it constantly. Finding joy in life again. And did you um, get support for that? Did you did you go through a program or? Yes and no, because I'd been going for about three years to my local drug and alcohol centre. I'd go there once a week because there's only one appointment a week where if you're in full work, you can attend. Not 12 steps. It was a smart recovery. And I'd go in there. I'd take part in the conversations. They'd teach us some of the different tools for recovery. And then I'd normally go back and drink probably the same night. And I think it was in one ear and out the other. But then when I really was determined to stop drinking the first time when I had my stretch of seven months, that wasn't available because... We've just gone into lockdown. I stopped drinking. My first stretch was in the middle of March. It was the 17th of March. It was two days after my birthday because I drank for two days for my birthday and dabbled in some other substances as well and just felt like death. And then I decided, look, I've got to stop. I know I'm not going to be able to stop living where, where I am because I'm just in the wrong environment. So I asked if I could go and stay with my parents for a bit. And I think my dad had been waiting for that call because he knew how bad things were and he hated me living on my own and being destructive so I went to stay with him and then the next week lockdown was announced so it's like oh I might be staying a bit longer actually if you don't mind because I don't fancy living on my own in a lockdown so I ended up staying for about just over three months I think and the drug and alcohol center was closed but so my support was mainly online groups Facebook groups I'd found and I'd check in there every day I'd try and encourage other people, even though I was at the beginning of my own journey. And I'd also share what I was thinking and feeling. And But just knowing that I didn't even have like the option to go to the pub was, it felt like a weight off my shoulders. There was still the shop and I could sneak drinking before because I'd gone and stayed with my parents before over Christmas and said I wasn't drinking. And then I'd find ways of sneaking alcohol into the house, usually by getting the, the small bottles and then I knew they'd be looking at me as I came back through the door to check for alcohol. So I'd get the two small bottles of vodka and I'd put them down the back of my trousers and I'd wear a long jacket. So when I came in, they wouldn't see them. They wouldn't see any bottles in pockets because the jacket would disguise it. And then I'd make an excuse that I needed to go to the loo, hide the bottles behind the toilet. And then later in the evening, take them into my bedroom and they go under the pillow. Yeah, I devised various ways of hiding alcohol. My partner for a long time, I'd hidden my alcohol consumption. from. I knew that he looked, there's a bottle of vodka in the cupboard and he'd like make a, either a physical or a mental note on where the vodka was up to in the bottle. So I knew not to touch that one. Or what he didn't know for a long while is that I'd already drunk it all and then I'd refilled the water up to the mark, point of the mark and he was just watching a bottle of water for weeks on end Whilst I snuck bottles, I've had various hiding places. Wellington Boot was good for a bottle of vodka. In the um, Behind the bath panel was a popular one, so I'd go to the toilet a lot in the evening. A bottle was only going to last a night, so often in the washing machine. He wouldn't check there. 
And then for the small bottles, the toilet cistern I found was a good place because the water also kept it cool. So win-win. I used to sneak an extra glass. So I would say I would never hide alcohol and sort of that was a justification to me. I can't have a problem because I don't hide alcohol. I'm mm. not, you know, I'm very open about my drinking. But then if somebody was staying with me, I might pre-drink mm. before they got there. And that was okay because we were having an evening, what have you. Or I would top up the glasses and mine would be filled and maybe a little bit more of a yeah. sip and filled back up again. So it's all the same stuff, isn't it? It's amazing thing, how resourceful yeah. we are. I, I didn't like hiding it. So if I could get other people drinking, if I could get my partner drinking, he'd see that I'm opening one bottle of wine, for example. He doesn't know that I've got a second one as well that I'm topping up my glass with. So he'll have one glass and he only sees me have like two and that's the bottle gone. But he doesn't realise I've had another bottle as well as the two glasses. It becomes very sneaky. But if anybody had stopped me, I, I would have accused him of being controlling in the relationship I, and I didn't like being controlled. But really, he was acknowledging a problem that I wasn't. I mean, it was plain for all to see, but in my eyes, he was in the wrong for trying to be controlling whilst I was indulging a destructive addiction that had me in its thrall. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think that's why the relationship was doomed, really, because it's not fun being with someone who's drinking out of control. Yeah. I know because I stopped drinking and my, my new partner didn't, Drew, who I'm still with. He kept drinking for another year and a half and his drinking was as destructive as mine and I think that's what initially attracted us to each other is because we were both very forgiving we'd both drink to the extreme do awful things and then be forgiving so I was like well I can't exactly judge I've done I've done as bad myself yeah. and but that year and a half where I trying to be sober and he was in self-destruction mode was just awful it was abysmal and I I got to experience I felt like I got my comeuppance I got to experience what I put other people through and it was horrific. And at the time when I was doing the drinking, I thought, well, I'm doing everything I can to shelter it from you. I'm drinking alone. I'm not drinking when you're around. I'm trying to shield you from the repercussions, but you can't do it. Even just like knowing that someone's out drinking, they've gone missing for like two days. It's horrific. It's like wondering where they are, trying to check up on them. And it's exhausting. It's like, well, like, you weren't there. So you can't have experienced any of that. You can't shield someone from your destructive drinking. No, you can't. And it's it's interesting you got that experience then of what it was like. That must have been quite eye-opening. Yeah, it was eye-opening. It was really difficult. And in the end, I, I booted him out. I said, look, I love you, but I can't live with you. You've got to leave. I thought he's either going to sink or swim now. I mean, that's a, a pretty big decision to make, isn't it? That must have been so tough. It was. It was tough. And I mean, I cried when I made the decision. I didn't make the decision lightly. I didn't I feared for his future, but at the same time, I thought, I've got to look after myself, I can't, and I can't carry on living like this. And you've got to protect right. your sobriety, which I know a lot of people talk about protecting your sobriety, but when you're in which, a relationship with somebody... Who's dependent, it's very difficult, especially when you've got the, the mental health on top of the, the drinking, and uh, it was cocaine use as well. And, yeah, that combination, alcohol, cocaine, and schizophrenia, just it doesn't mix well and I felt I felt like I'm making more of an effort to sober you up than you are and it's a wasted effort you can't sober someone else up yeah you would do well for maybe three weeks but I could always predict when a binge was going to start I just I knew when his paydays were when money was going into his account and he'd just disappear at midnight as soon as the money had gone into the account with some sort of excuse that I think my favorite one was that 
he was going to feed the swans. And we used that as a euphemism. So he, he disappeared and he said he went, he walked to South Church Park to feed the swans. And as I said, he was borderline agoraphobic at this point. He became like, he wouldn't leave the flat during lockdown. And then he disappeared and expected me to believe that he'd gone to feed the swans. He's, he's never shown an interest in swans or feeding them or walking to parks in the middle of the night. We can joke about it now, but at the time, it must it have been devastating, funny. actually. Yeah. It must have been really scary. Yeah, but he'd make an excuse to go out and say, oh, what, you're going to feed the swans, are you? And so he'd know that I was on to him and on I just him. wasn't going to believe anything he'd say. But that's what that's what addiction does to us. It makes us selfish. And then when you're admitting you have a problem, I mean, that's a bit of an embarrassing coming out again. It's a bit like when I was a teenager and I came out as gay. Well, really, I was only doing it to myself because everyone else had guessed. <laughs> it's like no you don't say it's like I'd, I'd make a fool of myself after drinking and ruin my life for like over 10 years and then I'll say look I've got a little secret to tell you I've got a bit of a drinking problem and they're like oh I'm glad you can finally see it yeah I'm glad you <laughs> got been waiting for you to say this for years it's um and you have to act surprised don't you what you never I couldn't imagine you having a drinking problem <laughs> And I don't know why I thought anyone would be shocked, but there you go. It's because we've lied to ourselves so convincingly, but maybe we're not so convincing to others. No, that's true. So what shifted for you then if you had that, because you had that relapse, you say, after seven months, and now you're nearly a thousand days by the time this airs, over a thousand days sober. What was the difference? What what made it successful this time? Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. i I think I'd had some practice with my seven months. I think having the relapse was actually really important for me, getting seven months of clarity and having something to compare to my drunken state to. I had seven months that weren't actually that bad at all. I'd just become complacent and maybe I wasn't particularly grateful for the seven months because they seemed a bit boring because I hadn't learned how to have much fun. And it was hard to learn to have fun because those seven months were during lockdown. So for me, sobriety it was better than being drunk but it was bloody boring but part of that was everybody was having a boring time limited yeah. options um people talk about rock bottom i think i'd hit rock bottom several times and i think i had the right motivations people will often say especially as sort of nlp circles neurolinguistic program that that positive motivation is stronger than negative motivation i'm not sure that is necessarily the case for everyone. I think that for me, the negative motivation was more powerful. I, I knew what I didn't want. I hadn't quite worked out what I did want, but I started getting a clearer picture of what I did want. So the, the negative motivation, I don't want this anymore. I don't, I cannot live like this anymore. That was enough to get me going. And then as I continued with it, I started building a picture of what I did want. And then I had some positive motivation as well to carry on. So I had both working in tandem, the negative motivation and the positive motivation. Actually, I've got a clear idea of what I want to do with my life, of what I want to achieve now and of what I want my life to look like. And so I think when you have both in tandem, that that's a force to be reckoned with, I reckon. I think you're right. Being on the donkey with both the stick and the carrot. It was the stick that got the old donkey going. Then I dangled the carrot in front to give me something to move forward to. And when both were going at the same time, that's when it kind of stuck. And it worked and it has stuck. So far. 
So that leads us quite nicely then to the three things. So I invite my guests on to talk about three things they've noticed that have improved for them in sobriety. What's your first thing? I said to you beforehand, I feel like a bit of a hypocrite because at the moment I'm going, I'm on a bit of a downer, but the main thing that's improved has been my mental health. I'm in a bit of a rough patch at the moment. I've been self-isolating a bit, but compared to how my mental health used to be, it's just like night and day, the difference. I'm not going to say I always have good mental health because I, I still struggle sometimes. Uh, at the moment, this is probably the lowest patch I've had since I got sober, I think. But I know there's a way out of it. And I know that I've got to actually do a bit of self-care. And I've got to start looking after my responsibilities. I've been neglecting them. I've been sleeping uh, instead of doing things. I just want to bury my head in the sands. I've been struggling to find joy with things. But I know what I need to do. And I've just not been doing them. So I've been um, kicking myself up the bum today and I've started doing the things that I need to do to get me in a, a better frame of mind again, because I, my mental health has been pretty brilliant, to be honest, <laughs> the last couple of years. And I don't think I could ever say that in my entire life. I've struggled with mental health since I was a teenager, since before then, likely it's just I first saw a psychiatrist as a teenager and was put on pills when I was 14. But the last couple of years, despite like I've had some horrible challenges, I've got through them and still managed to find joy in life, just sort of genuine happiness and fulfillment. So at the moment, yeah, I've been in a bit of a rut for a couple of weeks, but I know it's a rut and I know there's a way out of it. So that's that's reassuring. I know I've got all the tools to make myself better and I've just got to use them. It's that awareness, isn't it? You know when your mental health sliding, when you're so I'm aware now. I was never aware before. When I was drinking, I didn't know, have I got poor mental health or am I just hungover? Or is it a combination? I never knew when I was sliding because it, I never actually, it was never that good. <laughs> if you're at the peak of a mountain, uh, you can sort of sense when you're sliding down. But if you're most of the way down already, it's like you don't notice the extra few feet. <laughs> so now I'm a lot more aware of when mental health is taking a bit of a dip. And I actually acknowledged mental health as being important, whereas I never did before. I used to have an, uh, an apprentice in one of my last jobs. I, I loved having an apprentice and imparting all my worldly wisdom onto him. But one of the things I said to him, now I look back and I cringe, I said to him, why does everyone have to talk about mental health these days? Why can't we just be men and go down the pub and forget about it all? <laughs> like we traditionally do. I said, if you ever find me talking about mental health or even worse, starting a blog about it, feel free to shoot me, is what I actually said. <laughs> and now I find myself quite regularly talking about and blogging about mental health. And I'm just hoping he hasn't actually gone out and purchased a gun because I re I do regret saying that. And it sets such a bad example, but it's just it's just a, a man thing to do really, isn't it? Talking about mental health is some sort of weakness and really you should just go down just go down the pub and drown your sorrows like everyone else. Really bad advice that was. I'm, I'd like to think I did give him good advice that was related to his job and he's actually gone on to do really well and we both got a sort of a, awards whilst we were working together. M mine for um, mentoring and him for like, he was like a National Apprentice of the Year because he did so well. But I don't think it was based on that advice about mental health. I don't think that played much of a role in the ascendancy of his career. Maybe it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? 
I think but I like to think there's other nuggets of wisdom that I handed over that were more more useful to him. I'm sure you handed over lots of nuggets of wisdom. I'm sure you're full of nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> but, but yeah, Just maybe not, not the go down the pub and drown your sorrows. Maybe not. Doesn't that show how far you've come, though? Yeah. I mean, I was in, in denial about mental health, really. I just didn't want to talk about it. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about emotions. I denied that I had any. I felt I said I was dead inside and had no nutritional content. I'd joke about that, but it wasn't really a joke. And if anybody else started talking about emotions, I felt ridiculously uncomfortable. I remember on occasion, my my boss had sat us all down to tell us that he'd just lost his mother. So he'd had a bereavement after a, a long struggle with illness. So it'd been a very difficult time for him. And he was going to be taking a little bit of time away and he wasn't going to be as responsive as usual and just to let us know he was struggling. And I thought, I just felt really awkward. Everybody else seemed to know how to respond and to give him some comfort. And I just felt it was awkward and I didn't know how to respond. And I think I even told him that if he needed to talk to anyone about it, then any other person in the room would probably be a better choice because I don't know how to talk about these things. And I just thought I'd be honest because I really I didn't want him to talk to me about it because I didn't I didn't know how to handle that. But we're not taught, <laughs> so, are we? We aren't taught how to deal with these things. Oh, I have nothing to offer you here. Obviously, you go sober and then your emotions are just in front of you and they keep bubbling up and you have to deal with them. How did you find that in sobriety? Well, at first they didn't. I had quite a long period of numbness of what I wasn't aware was that when you're drinking heavily, you experience a condition called anhedonia. You might recognize the word hedonism from it. So anhedonia is the inability to experience pleasure. And when you're drinking heavily, you can become unable to experience pleasure in anything unless alcohol is involved in the equation. And once you remove the alcohol, all the things that you used to find gave you joy aren't giving you joy anymore. So it's like, I, I had lots of hobbies and things when I was a teenager. I'd try doing these things as an adult and think, oh, bloody hell, this is... I just get frustrated, like playing a musical instrument or something. I wasn't experiencing that much joy from it. I was just getting frustrated when I made mistakes. But slowly that passes. So the first part of going say with me was just, I was doing lots of walking. It was lockdown anyway, wasn't it? So I would go out for a walk and then six hours later come back because I'd, I'd never been so active really for many years. But as soon as I was told I'm not allowed to go outside, borrowed a bike from my dad. I haven't been on a bike since I was a teenager, probably. And all of a sudden, I'm sort of cycling halfway across the country because we've been told we're not allowed to. So it may be like rebellion is one of my motivations. It's definitely and, one of mine, yeah. <laughs> and eventually then motions did start coming back. My little walks in nature, my parents live in quite a remote place. And I go for a six-hour walk and probably bump into about two people for the whole of that time. I'm quite geeky. I've, I liked birds when I was a kid and I still like them as an adult. So when I go on a walk, I like to be able to identify things. It just makes the walking experience. They live in like a wetland area and there's loads of different sort of birds that I'd sort of recognised or sometimes they didn't and I could identify them. And that just made the walk more pleasurable. So I'm learning as I'm walking and I'm finding actually I'm, I'm beginning to enjoy this walk. I want to go on another walk. And it's actually looking after my body, especially after chain smoking 20 to 40 a day for quite a while whilst absolutely pummeling my liver I was actually finding a bit of joy in being out in nature in breathing again 
being able to smell things from not smoking and in in learning there's a joy in learning and I was getting all that back then I felt for a while like I was um, maybe a bit menopausal I don't mean that in a patronizing way but I would become emotional and find myself crying at really rubbish tv shows you know like really badly produced schmaltzy tv shows I'd find myself crying and thinking what the hell are you doing Michael <laughs> The emotions are finding their way out, weren't they? Yeah, I've only I've only cried when I'm absolutely drunk before, and now I'm just sort of crying over nothing. Yeah, that lasted a while, and eventually, all just it just evens out. I'm able to recognise different emotions now. I'm able to process them instead of bottle them up and then only let them out once I'm really drunk. You just get through it, don't you? My life is less dramatic now. I used to have massive peaks of euphoria from drinking which would then crash to the absolute depths of despair until I drank again. And it was that constant yo-yoing. And part, I think I was partly addicted to the drama of it all. It's like, what am I going to do with my Sunday? Well, I've lost my, my keys and my wallet. I've got people to apologise. So there's always something going on. And now my life isn't like that. I still get highs. They're not as high as the euphoric ones, but they're real. You know, they're just the highs from meeting people. I can get as excited now about meeting friends for a cup of tea as I could about a big night out. Tea and breakfast, bloody love it. And I can get excited about it. And the lows, I mean, I'm in a bit of a low at the moment, but it's not not psychiatric ward low, which is in the end days of my drinking career. That's my nights would end up either, you know, A&E, police cells or psychiatric ward, or just waking up on a roundabout or on just waking up on the high street, not knowing I got there. I only lived 10 minutes walk from the high street, but it was too dangerous for me to go out because I often just wouldn't make it home and be woken up by a tourist. So I don't have those crushing lows. The highs you feel from drinking, they're not, they're not real highs. No, they're not. <laughs> it's not. It's completely synthetic. You look at someone who's really drunk and they think they're having the time of their life. Well, when you observe them as a sober person, they're, they're not doing anything interesting. No, They've just got some chemicals in the brain that are tricking them into thinking they're having a good time. But what they're doing is really dull. Um, whereas now, if I meet up with people and I have a good laugh, good conversation, a meaningful conversation, I get a buzz from that. But it might not be as high as what I felt when I was drinking, but it's real and it's genuine. So I'm quite happy with this gentle sort of undulation of sort of happy or slightly down. It's it's not as exciting, it's not as dramatic, but it's just it's just a lot more pleasant. It's, I I like to live my life more gently now. And, That's nice. And there's nothing wrong with that. I always had this fear of being seen as boring, and I don't care now. Like people can think I'm boring. They can think I'm a nerd. It's it's great fun being a boring nerd. Sometimes I love it. I found myself doing it like a spreadsheet for work. And then it was that was a really dull task. And I actually said out loud, I was in Starbucks. And I said out loud without realizing it, I love how boring my life has become. <laughs> and I thought that was that was actually it was it was a very sad but happy moment. So <laughs> yes, my life has become boring and I just like doing it sometimes a really routine task. 
where I can, my mind can just go, go wander because I have ADHD. So I'm always focusing on anything but the task at hand. If I've got a repetitive task to do, my brain just wanders everywhere and I have like wonderful creative ideas and I don't actually have to do anything to entertain myself because my mind just entertains itself. And I was thinking, I love this. I love how boring my life has become. <laughs> Yeah, here's the advert for sobriety. Life is boring. There is magic in the mundane. There is absolutely magic in it. It's like the difference between, you know, we've all got that toxic X, haven't we? Where it was, like you say, the highs were high, but the lows were really low. And then you end up in a relationship with somebody who's predictable, turns up when they say they're going to, they say they love you, you trust them, all of the things that you think. And there's that peace and that's what I liken sobriety to. It's like a really good marriage. Yes, I think it is. I think I was thinking about uh, being addicted to alcohol the other day and people compare it to being with an abusive ex. I think it's a form of like, um, is it Stockholm syndrome? People that, yeah, held hostage. They develop this affinity for their captor. And that's how I felt like my relationship with alcohol was. I knew that I was being held captive. I knew it was abusive. I knew it was wrong. And yet I was afraid to let go because it became all I knew. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it was a form of Stockholm syndrome. If it's not called Stockholm syndrome. I'm going to look really stupid now, aren't I? We'll have to look it up, won't we? <laughs> I think it Please is called do. Stock. It is called Stockholm syndrome. I'm pretty sure it is. And that is what it feels like. I shared um, a post the other day. It was Christmas Day and that was the last day I said I was going to be drinking. It wasn't quite my last day drinking, but it was really close. And in this video, I'm I'm excited because it's the last day to drink because I'd said I was going to drink Christmas Day, and I'm I'm looking rough as hell in this video, and I, I can't wait. And but already, I confess, I'm thinking about my first glass of prosecco, and it's quarter to nine in the morning. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It is that captor. You're in love with your captor. It is, but it's always easier to start the diet tomorrow, isn't it? it the is. amount of times I've I'm I've declared I'm going to start the diet tomorrow and here I am at my fattest ever <laughs> still waiting for tomorrow to start the diet um and it's the same I've the past I'll say I'm, I'm, this is my last cigarette it's, it's very easy to be confident about stopping smoking whilst you're puffing a cigarette and it's very easy to be confident about stopping drinking whilst you've got a drink in your hand it's not so easy a few days later <laughs> Yeah. Like you say, we did a lot of day threes, didn't we? We did a lot of day threes yeah. and something just shifts. Like, And I do agree with you. It is the carrot and the stick. I love that analogy of having both on the donkey. I'm going to keep that in my mind. But yeah. I think we've got to be careful, though, about I hear a lot of people saying how hard it is to stop drinking. Mm. And I think for some people, it is a daily struggle. But I don't think it was the hardest thing I've ever done. No, I think the hardest thing I've ever done was spending 10 years drinking myself to death by comparison it took me about three months I reckon to start feeling okay about being sober and about six months to actively be happy about it and that's three or six months out of an entire lifetime and it seems like a good trade for me well how about having three fairly boring emotionally difficult months for a better rest of your life that's quite easy by comparison to how about you spend the rest of your life miserable and drinking yourself to death. I don't consider myself to be in recovery. I, I never liked that phrase anyway, even when I was in the early days of being sober. Um, but I I feel like I have recovered, and I know that's that can be controversial for some, 
I've, and I'll speak particularly for people who have gone through the the twelve steps method. And for me, I'll say I feel like I'm recovered because I've got a life now where I don't miss drinking. I don't want to drink. My life is structured to be perfectly happy without drink even being a factor. And for me, that's what recovered means. But for somebody, I've, a few people I've spoken to will say, no, you're in recovery for the rest of your life because you'd never be able to drink and then put it down again like a like a normal person. But that's not what recovered means to me. I yes, I wouldn't be able to drink and put it down and live normally. But I, I don't feel like I need to have a drink. So I, mm. as far as I'm concerned, I'm recovered. But it becomes very political, doesn't it? And people it does. Very, very emotive. Very, very emotive. Very emotive. But, yeah, I'm still counting days to... I was, I was having a conversation just yesterday with my partner, Drew. It's like, I think when I've got to my thousand days, I think I'll just stop this counting stuff because it's it's just normal to me now but then I thought oh but then I'll miss out on my three years something <laughs> <laughs> for three years so I'm not quite prepared I, I like the idea of having like an extra little birthday every year and isn't that the beauty of I think of sobriety and the fact that on Instagram you can see so many different ways of doing it and anybody who says there's only one way to getting sober just disregard them yeah they, there's loads of different ways. I saw somebody on Instagram. I think he's left now, unfortunately, who to stay sober, you know, these this sort of cupping thing you do, vacuum cupping that leaves the marks on your body. Yes, I've had that once. He, well, he he does it on his bum. He likes it and then takes pictures of it and posts it on Instagram. And so, so you'll see one picture. The first picture will be him and his mum and his kids all having a Sunday roast. And then the next picture's of his bum with a load of cup marks on it. And that... <laughs> And he used to insist that's what kept him sober. I was like, well, you know what? If it if works. cupping your bum is keeping you sober, you keep on cupping and posting pictures of your bum. That is absolutely fine. Oh, yeah, that's one thing that changed when I turned sober. What's that? My favourite colour. That's a random one. For my whole life, my favourite colour has been red, sort of angry and passionate. And I'd, I'd just done my kitchen, I tiled it, it was red and black, and I thought it looked really nice. And then I sobered up and was like, oh, I don't like red, it's too angry. I, I like yellow, so I started painting everything yellow. But now I've got a big angry kitchen and a mellow yellow bedroom. <laughs> I do think I wear more colour now. Whereas as a drinker, I would wear black, navy, and I'd want to sit always on the, the edge of a restaurant. I wouldn't, I would always want, I'd say I want to people watch, but it was more about I wanted to be on the outside watching in but now i'm just in the middle of the room drinking tea dressed like a peacock dressed like a not peacock. minding being the center of attention excellent <laughs> so what's your second point of sobriety then second point of sobriety is the friendships i've made i've struggled quite a lot in the past with making friends i actually remember it's still probably in my loft somewhere i got a really atrocious report in my last year of primary school and there was one section she'd had to add extra pages just to continue her rant about how awful I was my teacher in the last year of primary school and one of the sections says and it stood out for me because my dad read it to me and said Michael struggles to make and keep friends and that's something I carried through I think to adult life I always struggled and it became harder when I was an outrageous drunk because you're quite boring and nobody wants to be looking after you on a night out and nobody wants to associate with you because you it's just hard to be friends with someone who, who can barely walk who drinks themselves to that and so i had 
got a really reduced social circle. Uh, the people who did associate with me used to drink almost as badly as I did. And that's why we hang around. We didn't actually have much in common, but we would forgive each other's bad behavior because we were doing the same. And I'd lost my relationship through drink. And I, I then started trying to date. And I said I needed someone who was very forgiving because I will always do things that I need to be forgiven for. <laughs> I thought that was well, funny. That's quite but a it was... profile. <laughs> <laughs> Swipe left. I wasn't getting many bites, <laughs> strangely, but I, was, I thought I should. it's only fair to warn them what they're up against. <laughs> and I thought that I would just continue being fairly friendless when I sobered up. I was thinking, well, how am I going to meet people? Because the only way I'd ever met new people was by drinking in the pub. And then after you've had a few drinks, you can get talking to a stranger and then you might keep in touch so you can go drinking together again. And so I didn't really know how to meet people in another way, especially as I was sort of in my late 30s, early 40s. I'm like, how, how do you do this? Is it, is it just night classes? <laughs> and first of all, I mean, I was quite, I did spend most of my time alone and it was, it was dull. But then lockdowns got lifted up. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to have to try harder to meet people. And I missed going out on Friday and Saturday. I'd work all week and I'd get excited about the weekends. Like, yeah, it's nearly Friday. It took a good while for that sort of to shift. And then Friday I'd arrive and think, well, what am I going to do now? Watch another Netflix drama on my own. And I got rather bored of that. And so I thought, well, what else is there to do? Well, I looked around town and it's like, well, all the cafes are closed by half five. There's the cinema. It's like, well, it's not really socialising, is it? Sitting next to someone in silence, eating popcorn. That's marriage. Um, <laughs> that's a good marriage. Um, <laughs> so I thought... Um, let's see if anybody else is up for socialising sober. And I got involved in a local Facebook group and I posted there about how I'd struggled with alcohol. I didn't want it to be part of a night out anymore, but I still wanted to go out and socialise. Does anyone feel the same? And to my surprise, lots of people responded. I don't know what to do with this all now, so I had to start my own Facebook group, a local sort of one for South End for people not drinking, and got about 650 members. So it's like, well, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I found a pop-up shop and put on an, an event with some music and some comedy, which I eventually got involved with. I ended up going to the comedy and doing improv comedy and stand-up myself. And then from then on, I, I did events every weekend for a while because I wasn't working. I was suspended. <laughs> I think I did 15 events in total. It just felt important because there were lots of people there who were in the same situation as me and they craved the, the socialising. They were also still struggling, some of them, with, with not drinking. And there wasn't an environment locally where they could actually just socialise with people and not drink. I couldn't keep up with it in the end because it was taking up my whole weekend. I had I got loads of stock. I had people donating, like, fridges and things. Because I had to just start from scratch. I had to start from nothing. And here's me with ADHD, having never even organised a birthday party before. I couldn't sustain it when I was back in full-time work. But what did happen as a result is there's a local organisation that now does a monthly sober social event in a beautiful cafe that provides everything. And I can just go as an attendee. And that's wonderful. So in a way, I feel like it, it got things moving. And now there's a bit of a legacy. It's all done by somebody else, which is wonderful because I'm exhausted. Um, I, I feel like I got things moving and it was something worthwhile. But when I finally pass away, and my life flashes before my eyes. I know that one of those scenes that I see is going to be when I was cleaning mugs and glasses in this horrible little kitchen of the pop-up shop. 
and I could hear the music and I could hear people clapping and people had turned up and they were enjoying it. And I had done that all and it felt worthwhile. I had a little cry in the sink because I had actually achieved something that I thought was worthwhile. And that will definitely be one of the images that flashes before my eyes. Oh, that is beautiful. That's so lovely. It was was something small that felt big. And that's what got me into then trying to find other sober events and turning up to as many as I could to be a bit of a sober socialite. I thought, well, I've still got the domain name. I've still got the website. And I can see loads of other people organising events across the country now. So I'll use my domain name of sobersocials.co.uk and I'll list events because you really have to find them. Otherwise, it's like, well, people might organise them separately. And there's, there was no central place to go and find alcohol-free events in their area. So I thought, I'm just going to repurpose my website and I'm going to use it to blog and to promote other people's alcohol-free events. So there's someone's trying to have a social life sober they know that they can go onto a website and and find something hopefully within their region for me it was really important in the first year of sobriety i wanted to prove that i was just as much fun sober as i was with a drink in my hand i just still had this pattern of having to go out on a friday and or saturday night it's like i have to do this because that's what you do when it's the weekend and i did it for a good while and in the end, I just realised I'm not having a good time. I'm babysitting people. I'm being used as a free taxi. I'm finding people annoying after their third drink. And then I'm the last one to bed because I've had to make sure everyone else has got home into bed safe. And it's just, I'm not having fun, so I'm not going to do it anymore. I proved to myself that I can do it. I can survive like a big night out sober. And I survived a few of them. I just wasn't enjoying them, so I stopped doing them. And now I can get as excited. I'm going for breakfast. Ah, oh, breakfast. I love breakfast meetups. No one's drinking at breakfast. Well, unless you go to a really dodgy Weatherspoons. Um, most people are happy just to have the coffees and stuff in the morning. And who doesn't enjoy breakfast? No, exactly. And you get to see people who are hungover. And you think, oh, thank God that's not me. They're trying to force down some lovely food, which they can't even enjoy because they're too minging. And here I am with my eggs Benedict or Florentine. I can look forward to a breakfast and I can get up, meet people, be my best self, have fun. And you still get to be really silly and really crude. And those were things I wasn't expecting. I've got a few sober people in Southend that I've met up with. And I can have a bit of a dirty sense of humour and be very puerile. And luckily, so can other people completely sober. And we went to a lovely cafe. We were talking. The conversation became a little bit obscene. And we emptied the cafe completely sober we disgusted the other people and they left it's like oh this is brilliant this is like when you all go out and start chatting about something horrific when you're drinking and all sort of having a cigarette outside well we can still empty a cafe sober and and it was raining but we walked back to the cars and we continued the conversation in the rain until we were drenched (laughs) and that was all without one drop of alcohol and that was quite that felt so liberating because you got the stories and i thought oh i'm gonna miss the stories if i go out and drink there's always a story at the end of it. it might not it might be a horrific story which you sort of try and laugh off that ends in like the the police cells or the psych unit or ha 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 but really they're horrible stories and i can still get into scrapes i still have stories so i went to a charity shop and i found that there was some some leather trousers there and i thought well i can't not try them on so i tried them on they were a bit tight and i couldn't get them off 
<laughs> and I had these old dears from the charity shop. They're having to come into the changing room and they're both tugging, trying to get these lederhosen off of me. And it was absolutely humiliating. And there's a, another gaggle of grannies in there, all just sniggering because I'm stuck in a pair of leather trousers. So the stories, they continue. You can still make an utter fool of yourself. And I recommend it, actually. Just deliberately make a fool of yourself sober. That was one of the reasons I got into comedy is it was a challenge to myself. When I first went out, sober and other people were drinking heavily i felt really anxious and it's not something i had it's not an experience i had had since i was like a teenager and first started going out and i realized it's because normally when i go out the first thing i do is get a drink and all the anxiety is gone and now i'm feeling really anxious and i've got a choice here i can either hide myself away for the rest of my life or i can face up to it and try and do something about the anxiety and so i thought well would absolutely terrify me. And due to my wonderful ADHD, I found myself accidentally going to an improvised comedy gig. I turned up in a suit because I thought I was going to a networking do. So I turned up all professional and I looked around and was like, well, nobody here seems to be networking. I put it a week early in my diary. And on the night that I turned up, they had an improvised comedy showcase. So I thought, well, I'm here now. I might as well sit down and watch it. And so I watched the comedy and then they had a bit of recruitment for their next course. And I thought, well, that does sound absolutely terrifying. I should probably do it. <laughs> I, I I thought, I, I don't care if I'm funny or not. I just want to do this to terrify myself. Because if I survive, even if I've been really unfunny, not made anyone laugh, then I'll be less worried about making an idiot of myself in future. I'll be better in these social situations. So that's what I did. And what I noticed was when we came to the showcase, there's another couple of guys for whom it was also their first time. And they were downing pints. They were like shaking and downing pints before they went on stage. I was thinking, yep, that's definitely what I would normally be doing. And I suffer really badly from nerves. And in the past, when I've had to do public speaking, I've, you'd see me shaking and the paper that I'm holding shaking. This time, nothing. I was like, where, where are my nerves? And I think it's because my mindset had changed. They were worried about being funny or sort of dying on stage. I was there just to survive it. I didn't care if I was funny or not. I wanted to show to myself that I could do this. And I, I thought rationally about it. I thought, well, how many times have you made an idiot of yourself, like a real idiot of yourself drunk? Loads of times. Have you let it bother your self-esteem? Not much. So what is so terrifying about not being as funny as you'd like in front of other people sober? So it doesn't matter about being funny. And I sort of relaxed into it. And because I was relaxed and not stressed, I actually got some laughs along the way as well. I was a bit disappointed because I was hoping to die on stage and then have that full experience of, you know, the crushing defeat, which I'd then experienced growth from. But it wasn't as bad as I'd, as I'd expected. <laughs> um, others still might drink occasionally. I've got my auntie Linda. I spend a lot of time with her. <laughs> I consider her one of my closest friends. She's not actually my auntie. She's an old workmate. And she might at Christmas be a bit rebellious and have a Tia Maria or even a Cinzano and lemonade. I mean, finding a pub that still stocks Cinzano is a challenge for her. I mean, drinking's not a big thing. I think in her younger days, she was known as hollow leg. So because she, she could put the drink away and drink the men under the table. But it's, it's never been a problem for her. And now, like, <laughs> she, she'll have a bottle of something in the house and it'll be there for about three years. Whereas I She's one of those. Oh. Be there three hours. Yeah. And we've all got relatives like that, though, haven't we? Where they've got like a fully stocked liquor cabinet. <laughs> but my dad, I mean, my grew up, I've never seen my dad drunk. 
They might have a bit of shandy with a ploughman's, for example, at the pub, but that's about as extreme as it gets. He told me he just doesn't like feeling like he's out of control. Like, well, that's exactly what I love. <laughs> I love, and that that's why you stopped. <laughs> and that relationship's improved because I don't hide anything from him anymore. I actually want to see them, as a lot of the time I deliberately I try not to see them because my dad could always tell when I'd been drinking because of my puffy eyes, and I could never get away with anything. Now I don't have to do that. My relationship with them has never been better. And I've got new friends who like to do silly things. And I've got new hobbies. But I think what's important is you could get sober by doing crochet. You could do your 10Ks in the morning, but you could just do a lot of crochet. In my early days, I was um, doing a lot of crosswords to the point, like ad infinitum, it was ad nauseum. I was sick of bloody crosswords. I did 200 in the first week, but it got me through the first week. And yeah. You have to stop doing something, but then you actually have to do something. It could be anything, but you've just got to find something to replace that destructive behavior. And after you've got over your anhedonia, your inability to experience pleasure, you'll get that pleasure back from whatever it is you're doing. Find some hobbies and do them. So what is your third benefit of sobriety? My third benefit of sobriety, I'd say, is positive outlook. I have a, a positive outlook these days, and I can't say I ever have done before. I even, I'm so sober that I have a vision board. Wow. Because uh, you can't be sober without a vision board, can you? you Absolutely know, it's one not. Of the <laughs> but Sobriety comes a... with that checklist, doesn't it? You've got to have a vision board. You've got to do yeah. 5k every morning. You've, You've got, got to... the wild swimming. I've done the wild swimming, yeah. Have in, you? In February. Oh God, yeah. Well, I live by the sea and it felt criminal not to, to give it a go. I'm not so much into the cold water, I have to admit. I gave it a good shot. I've been out in February. It was horrific, absolutely horrific. That was with um, a guy called Sam Phillips, who's on Instagram as Dare to Dip, and he went in the sea every day for a year in his hometown of Felixstowe. And I'd lived in Southend for seven years and never been in the sea once. When I moved here, I said, oh, I'm going to be swimming in the sea every week. Didn't, not once. And then I agreed. It was on my birthday, which was also his one year, his final dip to make his one year that I would join him in Felixstowe it was it was freezing absolutely freezing to the extent that when I got out I went to a I had stopped to a cafe I didn't realize this could happen but um one of my testicles had gone so far inside me it got like stuck in the side of my leg I didn't know that could happen so that was a sober first <gasps> oh my goodness I that's appropriate for a podcast right this episode's then... now explicit <laughs> yeah but then during the summer you don't get the same benefits apparently but i just love cooling off in the sea on a hot summer's day there's always the initial shock but then after you get in it's just it is great i will just do it watch. at some point i'm gonna have to do yeah. it i don't feel i'm part of the sober crew really yeah you've got to do it i've got like um i devised i've got my own little sober group online sober group and i devised sober bingo for them and it includes things like sober karaoke uh, wild swimming, all the things that you see that everyone's did, trying to do. It's like, see, see if you can get a line, then see if you can get a full house. But yeah. yes, I've got a more positive outlook now. I, I keep myself busy most of the time, and there are things I look forward to. And as as much as I might take the Mickey out, the whole vision board thing, it was a useful exercise. I did it with my partner. I said I want to do a joint vision board because um, we had some time apart. I felt like we felt like we were going in separate directions. I was like, well. 
I'm trying to improve my life in one way and I've got one idea of what I want for my future. I don't really know what you want for your future. And what if it's something completely different? So and what happened? We well, we did an exercise where we asked lots of questions independently. I've printed out all these questions that we answered ourselves and we compared them and then sort of said, he loves craft. I, I'm not very artistic. He is. So we then sort of sketched out jointly what sort of the future could be like and so there are things on there which were more related to me and things like there's definitely going to be a donkey on mine i've got a donkey on my vision boards i've always wanted to be the proud owner of a donkey and we're going to be best mates and we're going to go out for picnics together he's going to have some carrots he's going to carry my picnic and the things on there he loves his horror films and halloween oh he loves halloween it's the best time of year so we've got sort of the pumpkins and things on there but yes we we broadly want the same thing and we've got an idea of what we want to achieve jointly together which is very reassuring because if we did want completely different things then what are we doing together <laughs> because neither <laughs> of us are going to get what we want are we so as long as he's got his pumpkins and you've got your donkey you're fine yeah on our little cottage in wales i reckon we're a year away Aww. we've got a bit of a plan to get there so I, I want lakes i want mountains and these are the things i've always loved to be honest and i've got to find a way that enables me to do the things I want to do, my, my kayaking and my mountains and, and nature and wildlife and um, have a plan to get there now. And now when I'm doing a, a boring or tedious or hard piece of work, I think, oh, this is helping me to get towards my little place in Wales with Drew and the chickens and one day the donkey and enable me to go kayaking at the weekends, climbing up the mountains. It feels like it's going somewhere. I have a trajectory and I've got an idea of what I want to achieve and that keeps me positive even when things uh, seem tough. Then I feel like it's been worthwhile and I feel happy. And exactly, you've got that goal now, haven't you? Which I know if you're anything like me as a drinker, you don't really think that far ahead in the future. No, you certainly never... don't dream. I had a friend come to visit whilst I was still heavily drinking in in the end days. And he said, so what's your five-year plan? And I laughed and I said, are we supposed to have one of those? <laughs> <laughs> and now you've got one. Yeah, well, I haven't necessarily pinned it to five years, but I've, I know what I, I want and I feel like I've got a plan for getting there. Yeah, and I've got the positive outlook that will help me achieve it. I've got a new job starting. By the time this airs, I'll be in my new job and that's working in the recovery sector. And that's something I can feel purpose from. Because I think it is important to try and find something that feels purposeful. Yeah. And I've been trying to cram all the purposeful stuff into my free time. But in my new job, I'm hoping that I'll get a sense of purpose from the work itself. You're in a very fortunate position if you are able to find purpose in the work you do. So yeah. I am looking forward to it. And who knows where it may, may lead? Who knows? Who knows? It's now slotted in on that little uh, roadmap towards the vision of the cottage and the donkey and the chickens. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. It has been so lovely to talk to you today. Lovely speaking to you too. It's been an absolute pleasure. And just to remind you to look out for the Dry Jan Like a Sober Rebel mini-series. These podcast episodes will continue throughout January, one a fortnight, as they always do. But running alongside, I've created a special series just for people embarking on dry January, or you may be interested in some of the topics I'll be talking about. So subscribe to find out more. The first one launches on January the 1st. And if you'd like to find out more about my sober journey, you can get my book, 
Becoming a Sober Rebel on Audible. You can also check out louisaevans.com where you'll find links to the podcast, to the audiobook, and to finding out more about how I can help. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I have certainly loved recording it. I'll see you in the new year.